Welcome to the exciting world of the movies. Smoking is not permitted in this auditorium. It's the law. Certificates are available at the box office. Thanks for helping us keep the theater clean. As you exit the auditorium, please deposit litter in trash receptacles in the lobby. Please be considerate and don't talk during the show. Happy fall, spooky season, everyone, all you faithful listeners of Movie Graveyard. We're coming back. You know, we're not going to hit you with that same old, same old, tired-ass Halloween shit that every podcast is doing right now, breaking out 31 days of 31-whatever horror movies. We're not doing that shit. We're going to hit you up with the true retro goodness, and I'm happy to be joined once again by uh, part-time missing in action for a few months, really more, because... Really more my fault than his, but still, we're happy to have back in the movie graveyard, Trev 3K. Trev, what's going on, man? Hey, man, it's good to be back. Oh, it's been definitely been too long. I wouldn't put it all on you. I think, obviously, some of it's me, too. Um, there's been some changes in my life. This is actually, geographically, the farthest we've ever been apart while recording now. I know. It's crazy, because so, it seemed yeah. like we were oceans apart before, and now we're continents apart. Yeah, we're we're literally like, well, I mean, I was going to say West Coast, East Coast, but I don't think either of us are actually on the coast, <laughs> but no. we're kind of more, I'm, we're definitely more adjacent of that now, because yeah. I am now, uh, for those of you, so I'm, I'm now living in Virginia, I have, I have started to teach at Virginia Tech, so uh, things have changed, but that doesn't mean I can't pop into the graveyard every once in a while still, so. That's right. You, you've you left um, your grave digging days behind, you no longer have calluses on your hands, you're conquering the upper echelon of academia, but still on the down low, late at night, you still creep in with the uh, retro flicks and get your is anybody Is anybody else who teaches at college knows you have to have a second job <laughs> to, get, have to pay the bills? So. You have to. Yeah. So yeah, so we're happy to have you back, and this is actually a really cool, you know, I, like as you know, I've been, you know trying to come up with uh, ways to do alternative episodes for a long time, you know, so we don't burn the listeners out with just straight commentaries. And you actually came up with uh, this this concept. Why don't you explain a little bit what we'll be talking about tonight? Well, this this came to me because I, I, I saw a post about this on Facebook, and I can't exactly remember who was talking about this. But um, someone pointed out that in 1986, Dennis Hopper starred in uh, – uh, well, like I said, well, I mean, we'll talk about the individual ones, but it was basically just putting out that 1986 Dennis Hopper had a string of notable releases, and I was just kind of blown away by that because it's not uncommon anymore for like an actor to have two movies a year. That certainly right. happens, but when I saw the list of the the films Hopper was in '86, I was just kind of like, wow, man, that's you. You couldn't if you're going to a theater in '86, you couldn't get away from this guy, and these are these are big movies, and to me, like these are movies I almost all love too. Exactly, And so I just felt like, and you know, I think just in general, like Dennis Hopper is someone who, it's interesting because I think Dennis Hopper can kind of symbolize a couple different decades, you know, and there's a, a, obviously Dennis Hopper, the countercultural figure of the 60s and 70s, but I think we shouldn't sleep on 80s Dennis Hopper, which is definitely like kind of a cool period for him as like, you know, this like resurgence that nobody thought for a while he was going to have. Right. Um, and then he gets a little bit, you know, then he goes away again for a while and he comes back a little bit later in the 90s. But I mean, obviously, today we're just we're just talking about this, this 86 period. So I think it's 
when people hear the rest of this episode, I think they'll be like us and they'll be pretty impressed that this guy had this, this string. And you think about the fact that he's probably making all these right in a row. Um, and, and for it to be a comeback too, for it to be following a period where he was unhirable and nobody wanted to work with him. I just think like, man, this is, this is worth paying tribute to. And I think like this, this show is the kind of show that you said it's in this, it can be a nostalgia show. Well, let's, let's be nostalgic for a great actor who's unfortunately no longer with us. And for what looks to be like one of the high points of his career. Exactly. And uh, I think we see now, we see a lot of actors kind of being busy with um, a mix of TV and film work. Um, Hopper did do a TV movie, which we're not going to talk about here. We're talking about just more theatrical stuff. But as far as like just straight up film actors doing feature length films, like, yeah, like he had to be hopping from set to set, like no pun intended, uh, to, to get all this in the can. And, and it kind of like, like you said, that resurgence of him being unhirable, like this is like this era, like probably between 86 and like 88, 89. That's when, you know, I, as, as a young kid, uh, first became aware of Dennis Hopper. And then like, he really like, you know, after this wave and then right after it, when he directed like colors and stuff, like he mm-hmm. was really like, in the course of a two-year span, went from, like, nowhere to, like, really being at the top of his game. I mean, possibly at this point. I mean, I don't know how much bigger you can ever get than Easy Rider, but but um, that aside, I mean, this this probably was, like, the height of his career. So, definitely. Yeah. You know, we yeah. got to get into it. And um, what we're covering here really centers around the year 1986. There's a couple kind of, like like fudging the numbers a little bit outliers here uh one of the films we'll get into um premiered at like festivals in 86 and was bought uh but technically came out kind of early-ish 87 and then there's one movie on here so kind of obscure like we're, we can't even really nail down exactly when it came out but yeah. imdb is listed as 1986 so we're just going to lump it all together but uh mm-hmm. yeah so i mean well before we get into it Trev, you know I always got to ambush you live here on air, and uh, I hope this one doesn't sting too bit, but uh, I can't let you be on an episode and not talk about Star Wars, of course, all right? <laughs> oh, man, I was wondering. I was yeah, curious. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know. We talked for 45 minutes before recording, I, d- I didn't even bring it up, but I got to ambush you it's here. true. We're, we're getting close to the, re- the premiere date. Shrouded mm-hmm. in secrecy, everybody wants to know everything, and yet all we have is a couple pictures and whatnot. I gotta ask you, and we have and we have a theatrical poster with a toy on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm ambushing you even deeper because I'm not even ambushing you with what you think. I gotta ask you, what is your anticipation level for the Mandalorian? Uh, Mandalorian, I'm actually fairly. I mean, I don't know if excited is the right word because I don't know if I ever get excited about any of this stuff anymore. <laughs> but uh, but I am I am looking forward to Mandalorian. I did I did sign up for Disney Plus. I get that like when I did that special deal where you could commit for three years for a really cheap price wow. i was like yeah why not i might as well succumb to my corporate overlords now you know <laughs> when, the, when the disney wars start in a couple of years i don't want to be left you know in the dust um but the mandalorian yeah i mean I, look it's got uh you know uh it doesn't look like it's gonna like be anything too new right but werner herzog is in it and oh, yeah. that alone drives some curiosity um, I like the directors they've got working on it. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'd say I'm as excited about that as I could be for anything Star Wars, which for me yeah. means, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. That's that's how I feel about Episode Nine right now. It's like, yeah, sure, I'm looking forward to it. 
Yeah, like, like the Mandalorian, like, when they was truly trying to hype us up, like, nothing was really getting me when they're in production. They're like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, this cast is amazing. We got Gina Carano. We got yeah. Carl Weathers. We got Nick Nolte. I was, like, really, like, ooh, this sounds very <laughs> underwhelming yeah. to me. We got that guy from Game of Thrones and the second Kingsman that nobody cares about. It's like, okay. Exactly. Yeah. We got it. So, like, I was really not about it. And then, like, um... It was really, and even the first trailer, I was just kind of like, this looks like some cheap backlot fake Star Wars shit. Like, I wasn't so, but the second one where he, he was getting into a little more of the action using the Mandalorian uh, gimmick weapons. And then, like, it was really like the clip where they showed, um, it's not IG-88, everybody got confused, it's IG-11, a different IG bot. But, like, actually seeing an IG droid in action and live action, because... I watched the first two seasons, I think, of Clone Wars, and I'm all about the IG bots. They 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 mm-hmm. focus them a lot, and just to see one in live action, double fist in the pist laser pistols, and all that was about it. And then I just seen a um, still picture, but there's a still picture of the Mandalorian fighting a couple of the uh, the type of um, aliens that I guess Bosk is. Yeah. So like, I'm like, okay, I'm all about. It. And then the real like hook into it. Because this has, like, been my number one gripe with the J.J. Abrams era of Star Wars. It's, like, I want to know, like, how did, um, imp- like, broken, falling apart Galactic Empire, how did that, like, transition into the First Order? And, like, they kind of did it a little bit in the story um, section of uh, Battlefront 2 or whatever. And I thought that was, like, actually really interesting to show, like, how the Empire was splintering off into these different factions or whatever. So like this 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 show is supposed to really take place in between that time and it seems like we're going to get at least like a little hint of like what like you know the empire cuz there are still stormtroopers in this and stormtroopers seems like stormtroopers in this one Yeah and I, I think of, the yeah, cannon fodder <laughs> I think the key to, the well aren't they always mm. I think the key to this show, whether it'll be successful or not, because I'm, I'm here's the thing about the Mandalorian. I'm certainly more pleased that we're getting this than a Boba Fett movie or a Boba Fett show. Like, yeah. I just don't care about Boba Fett. So I like that they're like using the iconography, which everyone likes, but applying it to a different character. But that's going to be the key is I hope I just hope that character is interesting. I hope there's an interesting hook to him. And even if it's like that, he's a mysterious character and you're kind of finding out his story as the show goes on or something. That's what that show needs. Yeah. It needs us to be interested in this guy some for some reason. And, uh, if he's just like kind of a cipher who's just in the show as the lead because he looks like a Boba Fett and that's cool, then I'll probably end up being kind of disappointed in it. But if they can do something with him to make him, you know, compelling, then I'll probably be on board. Yeah, and I mean, I'm just, I don't know, like, like, like I feel like with the, at least with that show, we have an idea, like, you know, of, of what we could be getting. So I'm excited. I'm really. You know, I think I'm going to go the cheap route and wait sure because they're going to release the episodes once once a week. I'm, I think I'm going to go the cheap route and wait till like pretty much most of the season is posted up before I subscribe. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm definitely all about that shit. Um, yeah. How do you feel about are you glad that uh, Ewan McGregor is getting another shot at Obi-Wan? I, not really, just because, um, and I mean, we call these TV shows. They're really not TV shows. They're more like miniseries. Um mm-hmm. But I just don't. I think it would be cool to see him in a movie, but because the way Solo didn't pan out well, obviously that's not going to happen. That one is the one. I guess you could do it just as well as a TV series. 
um, because or miniseries, whatever, because it's not really going to require a lot of budget. Like I'm sure he's just going to be in the desert most of the time. But that's that's the one where like I'm a little because it's not like Mandalorian where it's like a brand new character we're going to find out about. I feel like we know so much about Obi Wan. I'm actually a little afraid that it's going to be like Obi Wan overexposure if they do like eight, nine, ten hours of the miniseries. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like I would, I'll be cool with another movie dose, two hours of Obi Wan, but uh, I'm just a little worried about the character getting worn out. That's a valid complaint. I, I'm, I'm excited just because he is my favorite part of the prequels. Yeah. And I know, like, he was so as ever since Disney bought this thing, he's been so vocal about wanting to play that character again. Yeah. So I feel just kind of happy for him, and I, I do like, I like his version of Obi Wan. So yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I agree with you that they could do it poorly, obviously, yeah. but I'm hoping it turns out well for his sake. Yeah. And I'm kind of hoping all these people get like another run of it. Like I really, I'm in that camp that I really want to see Hayden Christensen in episode nine. I think like, I, oh, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I want to see some, you know, redemption for him. Cause a lot of idiots give him a lot of guff, even though I thought he did a fairly good job. And so three, when he turns into Darth Vader and yeah, yeah whatever. I mean, I, I think definitely with Hayden and especially seeing his other movies, I think he's an actor that benefits from there being kind of more meat on the bone in the script. Like, I don't think he's somebody that just gets by. I mean, he's certainly, you know, a charming and handsome guy and stuff like that when you see him in interviews. But I think I think he he's an actor who does better when he actually has something to play. Whereas I feel like a lot of his criticism from when he was Anakin, I mean, I liked him. I thought he was good. But it was like when he was just... He gets picked on for, like, the smaller moments where he just, mm-hmm. you know, like... Like how he hates sand or whatever. It's like it's like well that that kind of was like a nothing scene, <laughs> and now he's been ridiculed for twenty years over one line. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like like I thought I thought he was I thought he was at his height during the Star Wars thing. Um, like you said, Revenge of the Sith, where he's his eyes are all turning red and he actually has an emotion to play. You know what I mean? But but yeah, Episode Nine they just reveal Babu Frick. Everybody's excited. <laughs> I mean, I just really don't have any opinion about episode nine because it's shrouded so much in secrecy. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's either going to be the movie that is either going to redeem that whole trilogy or it's just going to like, you know, be just kind of more of the same and just leave people just basically on a ho-hum note. So, I mean, I think they're doing the right thing with it because like, OK, so you and I, obviously we don't need to rehash this whole debate. No. <laughs> I, I I mean, I do like Last Jedi, whatever. I'm in that camp. Right. And I mean, I think it's it's safe to say divisive film, clearly. Oh, yeah. This thing is like you have to like there are people who like it and there are people who hate it. And so for this film, what are you going to like? The only thing you can do is like basically just not say anything about it and right. just kind of go bank, bank off the idea that. Everyone's going to go see it just because they feel like they have to. You know, yeah, it's yeah. like, well, I guess I got to see how the story ends. And it and helps so, that it's come out holidays. That always helps, like, mm-hmm. epic movies, you know? Yeah, and they've, 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 got, they've got everyone's ticket already, you yeah. know? So what do, they, what do you need to show? You know, I mean, I, yeah, I wish the trailers were a little bit more compelling, and I wish the poster wasn't a piece of shit. But, oh, um, yeah. But, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm going to see it. And like you said, I mean, a strong ending will, will cause a lot of people to, like, overlook what whatever issues they had with the first two. And a bad ending will just have people saying like, well, that was a waste of time. But for me, who's always just looked at Star Wars as just like a kind of a fun thing. And like, I think we talked about this before. Like one of the reasons I love Star Wars is because I find it funny how people treat it like a religion. Like right. for me, it's more, that's like an ironic element of it. And all the movies I just kind of enjoy. And it's a fun space adventure. So hopefully this one is just that again. I don't know. 
Yeah, I just, you know, I mean, you know me, like, like I'm not really on board with just, it's just really both JJ and, and Ryan's, like, storytelling in 7 and 8, but it's like, they gave me Rogue One, which I pretty much enjoyed, they gave me Solo, which I loved, and now I'm on the edge of, like, getting this Mandalorian thing, which I'm probably either going to, like, love or hate, it's like, it's hard when it's just, like, okay here's the episodes and that's all you get but like they're giving us alternative content so like if you're the like type of fan who doesn't like the movies even you got other shit to watch so that's kind of yeah and i think that'll only grow under disney plus you know yeah i mean that that's like the best thing if there is a best thing about disney (laughs) we don't even need to go bob Iger publicly admitting he tricked george lucas and that he fully stands by his decision like (laughs) and honestly if i was them after episode nine i would take i would take a long break yeah. from film and just concentrate on Disney plus. Like I wouldn't even oh, worry yeah. about, I mean, if I, cause I mean, I think if I was Ryan Johnson, I would walk away. I wouldn't yeah. do that trilogy. Um, Benioff and Weiss, you're really getting into some bad <laughs> stuff there, I think. So, well, well, yeah, like it's weird to me too, that like they announced all this shit and, and it's, it's kind of like, and it seems like there's like a, a whole executive shift, like probably three years from now going on with Lucasfilm. But like w- one thing as a company where I think they've kind of failed the most was they kind of, like, announced a lot of half-baked shit and then had to scrap Mm -hmm. it. So, I mean, obviously we know all about the way they hire and fire, like, directors. But, like, they've kind of just had a lot of false starts, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, Josh Trank is going to do this. Oh, no, he's not. Uh, Colin Trevorrow is going to do this. No, he's not. I mean, to the point that, I don't know if you know this, Trev, but um, one of the the spaceships at... um, at uh galaxy's edge is from a colin trevorrow design from when he was working on nine and now you know obviously that didn't happen so who knows if the if they even use that design in jj's episode nine so it's like i yeah. like it's just everything's kind of like it starts out and i mean i don't know too much about the business but like all i heard was like oh ryan johnson's getting a trilogy benioff and weiss getting a trilogy and then i hear benioff and weiss get all this netflix money so like do they have the time to do a trilogy anymore like i don't right I just don't know what's going on, and I think, I think like you said, like once all this shakes out and they end this like seven through nine trilogy, I think they're going to reevaluate. And I think, yeah, I, I think either one or two things are going to happen. I think either Benioff and Weiss or Ryan Johnson, one of those trilogies is definitely going to get canceled. Mm-hmm. And I would at this point, I would think it would be Benioff and Weiss because they they're 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 contracted to do other shit at this point. But um, but yeah. I'm, I'm like you just give us three years of disney plus shit and then you know do something else yeah but yeah take your time like they made the same mistake what you just said they made the same mistake dc made of like announcing a whole slate yeah. before seeing if what you're doing is working like marvel at least you know marvel never got that cocky they didn't start looking super far into the future until after the first avengers film hit big you're right then then they could do that let's announce our next four years crap but yeah yeah just had to bring it up because it's been so long since you and me talked about it but yeah yeah but all that's yeah, probably the nicest conversation we've had about it so it's fine <laughs> well it's you know what trev it's probably the nicest conversation because at this point i care the least <laughs> that yeah I've ever i think it's true of me too <laughs> <laughs> and maybe on the next episode we'll dive back into how neither one of us care that much about marvel anymore <laughs> we'll go so it's all about dennis hopper so let's get it rolling uh, let's try to go chronological here the best we could using Wikipedia and IMDb dates. 
it looks like Hopper, you know, he kind of, he kind of like, well, not him, but his, 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 his companies, they, they, they released the, you know, these movies, they, they kind of took it easy the first half of 86. They weren't, they were like saving up all that Hopper goodness for pretty much the late yeah. summer, fall. So August, 1986, we got the long gestating sequel, like much ballyhooed. I remember this movie. I'm actually old enough, Trev. I got some of the Fangorias that I bought off the newsstand that covered the making of this film. Talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Oh, man. Favorite of mine. Favorite of everybody's, I would think. Uh, you'd be surprised. I still see a lot of people online who don't like this movie. Really? Uh, yeah, and I think it is just that. So, to me, this is the kind of sequel that I love. So, that, like, it reminds me of, like, um, like a Gremlins 2 or... Um, you know, I guess House too a little bit. Like you know, these like these genre sequels that come along and kind of parody the first film. You know, and like and I know for Hooper that was a big thing. Where like he really wasn't interested in doing a sequel. Um, this is part of that, that three picture deal he signed with Canon. The deal was they would let him make two other films if one of them, if the third one was a sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. And then of course there's the infamous story about how he was frustrated that nobody ever saw the humor of uh, the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So this time he's like, well, I'll just really lean into the humor. And that's the thing is he so he takes the takes what made the original great and it just not completely tosses out the window because i think this movie does get very dark at times but he certainly goes like a much more black you know dark comedy route this time and that's great for the for dennis hopper because the character he plays he really just gets to just ham it up and go go all in so um his character in this is of course uh lieutenant uh lefty enright which yes that's a bad pun right off the bat lefty and right but <laughs> toby over <laughs> uh so as we as we learn uh you know early on in the film uh dennis hopper's character is actually the uncle of sally and franklin from the original film and ever since the events of the first film which uh, in the opening crawl we learned that sally after you know escaping she seemed pretty insane at the end of the first movie and sure enough she slipped into a coma and never came out and Lefty Enright, who is a, uh, uh, I believe he's, is he just a police officer? Or is he a ranger? I thought he was remember? a Texas ranger because he has yeah, the hat a, and everything. Yeah. So he's a, he's a ranger who has basically dedicated his, his life. Uh, oh, it says he's a former Texas ranger. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. He's dedicated his life since then to finding these murderers and proving that this really happened. Because basically there's also been a giant conspiracy to kind of act like, you know, to sweep it under the rug. Texas does not want people thinking there's a yeah. band of chainsaw murderers all through going through the state. And he's been just tracking them down and trying to uncover it and find them. And of course, he's not interested in bringing them to justice. He's interested in just destroying them. Some Texas payback, yeah. Yeah. And he essentially, he's so obsessed with this that he's willing to use other people as bait, which he does with our main character, Stretch, a radio DJ who ends up recording uh, Leatherface and his. Uh, other brother chop top replacing the hitchhiker from the first film uh they kind of murder a couple kids early in the film and get recorded doing it and stretches the radio dj who's on the phone with them when that happens so she actually has a recording of the chainsaw murders and and uh, dennis hopper's character uses that to kind of draw them out by telling her to play the tape over and over so that they'll come for her um very simple film very it's a very short film or i mean it's, you know it's just a little over it's just about 90 minutes or so very propulsive um not much happens in it and when you get to the third act it's a lot of kind of redoing some stuff from the first movie Uh but like but like i said it really goes more funny this time it presents kind of a different version of leatherface and that he's so childlike in the first film so i believe i think it was hooper's idea that he said like maybe in this film 
if he was like a child in the first one, maybe now he'd be a teenager going through puberty. Right. So we see him kind of like de- develop this crush on uh, Stretch, and he doesn't want to murder her. He just wants to kind of make her into his girlfriend. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Jim Saito comes back as the cook, and God, he's so – I love him in this movie. I mean he was great in the first one, but with the, when he gets to like sink into just being like an even goofier version of the character, he's fantastic. Of course, this is the breakout role for Bill Mosley as Chop Top, but – but the man of the hour, Dennis Hopper, also fantastic in this. And I'll tell you what, it really bums me out because you might know this already, Goat, but years later, Dennis Hopper did some interview. I think it was a Playboy interview. And he called this like the film he was most embarrassed to be in. Really? <laughs> yeah, and that's like a bummer to me because, he's, first of all, he's definitely made way worse movies than oh, this. Yeah. A lot of them. But he's also, he's great in this. I mean, he's, it's a really fun character. He he plays well. The scene where he goes to the, the chainsaw store and like tries out the chainsaws he's great in that i mean god he go you get to see him go into the lair with like chainsaws and holsters and then have a sword like a, a sword chainsaw fight with other face what's not to like yeah like like this film like what i really give it credit for and especially you know watching it now is i always feel like there's like that thing with sequels um especially with like horror sequels in general but also like action movie sequels but like you kind of have to deliver the audience the movie they already know, but you have to mm-hmm. find a way to turn it up a notch. And like yep. what I love about this is I feel like there's so many situations uh, with the with the chainsaw family that are like 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 some of my favorite scenes. I mean, I do love the gore shit. Like I think the opening sequence with the guys in the car and all that. Like I think that's like one of the best opening se- sequences to just about any horror movie. But um, I like that you get to see the cannibal family whatever like in in like different situations like just like the minutia like as over the top and crazy this movie is like there's still like more reality into it so it's like i love that like yeah like they do the whole like uh scene where they go to like like the chili contest and shit in that hotel Mm -hmm. like i just love seeing them like be in that setting and then like like you said like the scene where leatherface like you know runs rampant through the radio station like obviously he's doing all his love of his shit but like you said like they add the dimension of like him interacting with stretch and it's like there's there's a there's like that scene where like you know he's all like with the fucking chainsaw and he's like looking at her and shit like there's some great like actual character development there like there's somewhere to go with it story-wise other than just him hacking her apart you know what i mean yeah, and then when you get into the whole, like we should mention that, like basically the family is relo- relocated from their, um, you know, their old decrepit house to like they're like living like basically underground in like this closed down amusement park. I mean, like you, you just, I don't know, like they're just they're, like he takes Toby Hooper tapes a lot of shit that was in the first one that was already cranked up to ten on a crazy scale, and he cranks it up to like fifteen. So I mean, yeah. We should mention on like a production value aspect that their lair in this one is one of my favorite looking oh. like sets ever in a horror movie. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, I remember as a kid, um, I was lucky enough. Uh, pretty much my only drive-in experience as a kid was 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 a double bill of seeing this with uh, Reanim- the first Reanimator movie, and like mm-hmm. which was like the perfect setting. But like I remember also catching this a bunch of times on cable or renting and shit mm-hmm. again throughout the years but like as a kid like the thing that kind of stuck out the most to me was um kind of how like 
I guess maze-like and how easy it would get be able to get lost in that lair. Like, that was kind of the scariest thing to me that, like, okay, like, if they're, like, attacking you in the town or whatever, like, you have places where you can run and go, but, like, that that whole fortress and shit that they had underneath and just how decrepit and run down it was, like, it seemed like it was, like, virtually impossible to escape in there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then, I mean, like, I guess I've seen, I mean, I, I, I can understand people you know, only liking the first movie, maybe like yeah. I get it. And I can, I can also understand the idea of like, well, I don't want it to go that comedic at all, but I would sure. like, I, I alluded to this earlier, but I do think for as funny as this one is, it still gets very dark. Mm-hmm. And there's some material in here that's like so twisted that that's why I've always been able, I, I fully look at this as like, in my head, this is canonically the sequel. Like, yeah. cause obviously this is a series that has a lot of weird continuity where basically because of this way the way this one ends anytime they made another sequel they had to disregard this one and essentially we're left with multiple sequels that only act like the first film exists and i enjoy some of those and you know i i'm fine with like the franchise doing that over and over um but to me like this is the one i think of as the actual continuation of the story and part of that is because it is so twisted and the scene where leatherface forces stretch to wear the face of her like boss slash unrequited lover and dance with him <laughs> yeah it's just one of the more bizarre and just dark and twisted things you'll see in a horror film yeah and like yeah it's it's still it's still an easy movie to get disturbed by even though it also has a lot of comedy yeah it's kind of funny too because like obviously rob zombie's house of thousand corpses is really influenced by texas chainsaw massacre but it's crazy how much the devil's rejects is too because like the uh, part that like Forsyth plays in that is like very similar, like with the on the revenge trail. It's very similar to how Hopper is in this film. Yeah, well, and like you said, in Devil's Rejects, there's that scene where they they do the same. They tie that girl up and put that guy's face on her, and she yeah. runs out. And she's actually the face on her and her arms are tied in the exact same way Stretch is in this. And I mean, obviously, this is a movie. This is movie's an influence because this is where Rob Zombie found Mosley. You know. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, so I get it. Like, it's it's not surprising to me this is the first one that comes along in this batch of films we're talking about because, as we said, this seems like the kind of movie where, knowing that he was kind of embarrassed by it, I, I'm guessing this is the kind of thing where Dennis Hopper did this movie because, to him, this is the only kind of work he could get. Yeah. You know, like maybe he wasn't super excited about being in a horror film like this, but at this point, his career was kind of hurting. We didn't even mention earlier. We should say, in case anyone's listening who doesn't know for some reason. Um, Dennis Hopper just obviously had a lot of addiction problems yeah, yeah. and, and I think it was in like 1983 or so that he, he entered into rehab and that really kind of derailed his career for a while. Cause he had a, a lot of like issues on sets and stuff. And so people weren't really eager to hire him. Right. So that, that said though, he, he's clearly the kind of actor who, if you're making a text chance of Oscar sequel, no matter what his problems are, he's going to be a git because, he's a big enough name to bring some credibility to it. And I think that's also where too, when I, I remember when I was a kid and they like said, this is around the time where I started to kind of know who Dennis Hopper was because this, I would have seen all his movies when I was young, but you know, you know, it's like, it's in Hoosiers and everything. And, and then it's like, it's kind of odd that all of a sudden there's like a star in a Texas Chance Massacre movie. Yeah. But that kind of starts a precedent for the series to where after this point, it seems like almost all of them have at least like one kind of name in them. And maybe that's like a little bit of a bummer, but I can't totally dismiss it because he's awesome in this. So, yeah, yeah, and I think too, like in a weird way. I mean, obviously, I mean Dennis Hopper was like involved in like a lot of like old Roger Corman, you know, type mm-hmm. stuff. 
but he's not somebody that you you know really in any sense of the word would equate with the horror genre. But yeah. I think I think he was perfect for this because like Texas Chainsaw as a horror film compared to other horror films at the time, it was very much like a counterculture horror film. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like you don't really have like you know it was like independent movie counterculture, and like you don't have anybody like in the flesh more personifying at that time independent film counterculture than Dennis Hopper. So, I mean, I mean, it's, it's like, it, it, as much as it, it's weird to think Dennis Hopper's in his Texas Chainsaw movie, like, it, it makes, like, perfect sense in a way, you know what I mean? Well, and even, like, I mean, and that's going to be true of all these films. Like, we can probably take a moment for each of these and talk about how, like, all these have an element of, like, why, it's, why Dennis Hopper's, like, the right person for this role. And here you see an authority figure driven to madness from what's happened to him and his family. Right. And so it's like it's actually perfect for him because he doesn't just have to play the straight lace Texas Ranger. He's completely off his gourd in the last act of this film. I mean, he's like right. he's singing while he's going through the lair, tearing it apart. He's, you know, um, like loudly doing the Lord's Prayer and stuff. I mean, he's just he's just nuts. And that's again, that's perfect for Hopper because he can obviously tap into that same old manic energy he used to have. Yeah, it's like it's really weird. Like, just, you know, in current day, but, like, when you look back, there's, like, certain celebrities, like, whether it be, like, Dennis Hopper or Robin Williams or even, like, I guess really Crispin Glover, but there's, like, kind of guys who make careers off of beat, like, literally just their energy, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like some type of neurotic, you know, hell-bent, driven-to-be-crazy energy that they can manifest in roles, you know? Like, with Robin Williams, obviously, there's more comedic but with like crispin glover dennis hopper it was really like to go to the dark side of like that manic energy so yeah i guess not too much more to say about tcm2 other than it's awesome and um i don't know like i, I think in a perfect world it, it'd be kind of cool even though i do enjoy some of the other chainsaw movies it'd be kind of cool if we only had the two to- uh, toby hooper entries into the series yeah, I agree with that. Like, so I, I do like some of the other ones, but to me, like, these are the real two. So. Yeah, yeah. So that was in August '86 that that came out, and pretty pretty high profile um, in terms of like you know release and marketing. Like, I actually remember it coming out, but but then like in September, and I'm pretty sure this would have had to have been a more platform release, uh, kind of more on the underground scene. Uh, Blue Velvet came out, the David Lynch film, which um, I don't know, like 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 as many crazy roles as um, Dennis Hopper had had up until this point, and even just coming like literally weeks earlier, having TCM two came out. I think this was when you say this was his signature crazy guy role. Well, for sure. I mean, this I don't think there's any doubt that this is the movie that reignited his career. Um, and I know this is the one where he really fought for this role. He, he wanted it badly. He wasn't he wasn't Lynch's first choice. I think I know I, I believe Lynch was looking at um, like I think Michael Ironside is one of the people he's thinking about and Harry Dean Stanton. But uh, but Hopper was like, no, I am Frank Booth. And like he really kind of fought for it. And once you see the movie, like, yeah, I mean, I don't I can't picture anybody else in this yeah. part. And it's I would say, yeah, other than Easy Rider, this is his most iconic role, I think. Yeah, for sure. And, like, the thing that I love about this movie, and this is another one, I think this is, at least by my memory, and I think I've said this before, this is, like, my first visit to, uh, uh, I mean, we we had, like, neighborhood theaters still when I was a kid that would, like, occasionally play, like, the odd, like, independent film. But this was, like, my first time visiting a legit 100%, you know, independent film theater. And I just remember, like, 
like you know even as a kid realizing like it was kind of like a different place and just like like i try to perrier water and as a kid perrier water tastes like the worst shit ever (laughs) but but like yeah so it was like it was kind of cool i kind of had a cool experience of like even as a kid and like my dad kind of you know prefacing like oh it's at this theater and blah blah blah, and they play this kind of movies and all this kind of so like even going in as a kid like it wasn't like i was completely like you know, blown away by the strangeness of the film. Like, I kind of knew, I was like, oh, there's, like, something different than just, you know, kind of mainstream Hollywood movies. But I think what I love about this movie for me is um, I love the beginning, how it's, like, kind of almost like this, like, dark fairy tale and uh, Kyle MacLachlan's character. The way he's kind of just, like, skipping along. Like, like it's modern day, but it feels very retro, kind of 1950s, perfect, suburbia-ish. And he kind of cuts through a field, and he finds his severed ear. And just, like, the the, the way it just kind of... I, I guess it's kind of like a Loss of Innocence movie, but it's also, like, this nightmarish descent into this underworld. And it's, like... It's literally like a, 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 you know, Dante's Inferno type tale of just going down the rabbit hole of hell and like literally, you know, the devil is Frank Booth. Like, well, and it's playing into one of Lynch's favorite themes, right? The idea that 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 dark underworld is always existing below this, like this picture perfect Americana. And so, yeah, like that opening, he said, I mean, that famous kind of opening montage where he zooms into the lawn after the guy has a heart attack and shows the insects down there. And then, yeah, so it's like it, it. it's basically like, yeah, what if you lived and lived, lived to Beaver, but didn't realize that down the street there's an S and M murder ring right. going on, you know? And, <laughs> and, and just, uh, yeah, just it just it just it's so perfect and eerie because it is he he like sets it up that it's such a thin layer between the two worlds. So, mm-hmm. but I mean, I think everybody pretty much knows some of the famous Frank <laughs> Boothisms, like they've made their way into pop culture. But I mean. Just, just what's your takeaway? I mean, f- from the whole, it, it, it's nitrous that he's in, that he's uh, ingesting, right? Yeah, gets- well, that and that was that was uh, Dennis Hopper's idea. So, I mean, like, I, I can't remember. I, I just recently read uh, David Lynch's autobiography. Um, but so I, I love David Lynch. I mean, he's one of my favorite all-time filmmakers, and I'm I'm fairly obsessed with his work. And I, I know in the autobiography he talked about how – I can't remember what the initial drug was they had Frank Booth doing. But Dennis Hopper was the one who said, well, I think we should have it be nitrous. Because, like, obviously he knew, right? So that's another right, – right. we, we talk like his background. So he was – Dennis Hopper, if you watch the – if you get a chance to – if you have a Blu-ray for this, the documentary about the making of it, Dennis Hopper was very moved that, first of all, that David Lynch chose him. Because this is obviously a, bear, a bigger get as an actor than Text Chance Massacre too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, um, sure, David Lynch was coming off of Dune, which had been kind of a failure, but he still had a lot of clout, I think, in terms of the artistic community yeah. because of Eraserhead and Elephant Man. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely looked like a real, real artist, and I think it meant it, you could tell it meant a lot to Hopper for to Lynch to give him this like opportunity, and he really did allow himself to kind of tap into some of his old demons and bring that out as Frank Booth. And like I said, Frank Booth is kind of the devil. I mean, but but I think what really makes Frank Booth scary is that. He's so scary and so terrifying, but in such a weird, realistic way. Yeah. Because it's just, it's just like he's a really odd person, right? But I mean, that's the kind of like it's the kind of like mental illness or just intense like sociopathy that seems so real, and you think you could encounter if you were unlucky enough to just end up in the wrong place. And I love that the film doesn't give him a really too much of a backstory or anything. Oh. He's just kind of he 
comes into the story. We don't really find out why he is who he is, what he is. He's just this terrifying figure that completely upends uh, Kyle McLaughlin's life and everything. And and uh, and I can't uh, order uh, you know a PBR at a bar without thinking about this this movie. So you know, yeah. definitely. <laughs> I mean, if you're ever at a bar and someone orders Heineken, and then people of course say you know say the, the famous line, "Well, thank thanks to this film and thanks Dennis Hopper." Yeah, and it's just. I, I think really what 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 makes Frank Booth so terrifying is like how you said it really is like a, a very realistic portrayal. It's like he's got this woman that like he's literally for all intents and purposes was pretty much like a sex, sex trafficking type uh, situation. So he holds mm-hmm. all this power where he can like literally ruin people's lives, murder people. He's got this whole gang of like cronies, you know, just great guys like Brad Dourif, super weirdos. But I think that what makes him scary is those moments where he gets super vulnerable. Like, like mm-hmm. that's part of it. Like, like he gets like when he gets an. I mean, I don't even know what you want to classify his weird sexually aroused state. Or whatever. Yeah. Or, or what, just when he's watching her perform and he starts crying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's just like, it's one thing when somebody's just trying to project, you know, toughness or machismo or intimidation. But when, but when you see them also break down like that, you realize that they really are, you know, have tipped over like the edge of sanity and just fucking, you know, capable yeah. of anything. Well, that's what makes a... That's what makes a great memorable character too, because it's it would be very easy to just play Frank as only scary and only insane and only terrifying in every moment. And we definitely see movies often do that with their villain. Yeah. But like you said, also have that bizarre and again unexplained, but no less fascinating relationship with Ben, played by Dean Stockwell. Yeah. Where it's someone who for some reason Frank just obviously like looks up to, like yeah. as like, I don't know, like a father figure, an older brother kind of figure, but gets very moved and very emotional when when ben does his bizarre karaoke cover of in dreams yeah i was gonna say every time i hear that song now i'm instantly transported to yeah. that scene <laughs> like i think when i bought the dvd of this you know way back when I, I think that was like a scene i would just put the disc in just to watch that scene <laughs> yeah it was just i don't know like there's something that's so um oddly fascinating with how theatrical and bizarre it is but yeah, no, it's because I think like I mean I think the next one we were going to talk about is probably more you could credit more to allowing him to fully enter back into like the mainstream of Hollywood. Yeah, but I think the thing about this movie is you have to look at this as like the most important film of his comeback because this this one role I think basically guaranteed that from here on out he'd always have a career if people just needed a, a scary villain, you know, right, right, yeah. Dennis Opper is going to be the guy to go to, and I mean he played. I mean, it's not to say he hadn't played like kind of more intense characters before, but this level of evil and everything was, was fairly new for his career, I think, you know? And I just, I mean, without like, you know, going in and breaking down all the different things, like I, I, I can't, I can't put it over any stronger. I mean, other than like, I think this is like one of the best portrayals of true human evil that, like I could imagine in a film, you know, definitely that I've seen. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, like, I just, I don't know. Like, like, like I think Lynch definitely went, like kind of explored that whole underground society more, obviously in things like Twin Peaks and later. But um, I mean, it's kind of always been there in his work going back to Eraserhead. But to me, this is like the most 
I don't know, crystallized, vivid, like, version of that. So, I mean, I just, I don't know, I, 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 like, as great as everybody was that came after, I don't think anybody did it better than Hopper. I mean. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's hard to say, but, I mean, would you rank this as Dennis Hopper's best performance ever? Um, It's my favorite Dennis Hopper performance. So, yeah, I guess, I guess technically I would, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so definitely. I mean, uh, King King Koopa is up there. But. Well, the thing with King Koopa is, I think like much like Jared Leto's Joker, um, about ninety percent of it is the hair. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> yeah, the hair is doing the hair is doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah, the, the blonde dreadlocks or whatever. <laughs> and I and there's actually you know because we can't make any like new things. We got to make all you know. There's been a lot of. Uh, talk recently of rebooting the Mario Brothers cinematic universe and I just I can't see it moving on without Dennis Hopper to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe they can get a Dennis Hopper hologram in it. That would actually be something I'd be interested in seeing, to be honest with you. I think that <laughs> wouldn't it be weird if like somebody like Disney created a Dennis Hopper either hologram or um you know, what do you call it? Uh, automation, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> they just like placed them in the Hall of Presidents at Disneyland or something like that. Or what if there was like a, what if there was like a blue velvet, like dark ride somewhere oh, where you just kind of go through the scenes of this animatronics. Oh my God. That would be amazing. I would literally like, I would pay 200 bucks to like walk into a theme park, ride that one ride and then leave. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine all like the little things you could build though. Like like what would you have like the concession outside be? Like what kind of Frank Booth themed like food and drink what could we have with that? Well obviously you'd have to have like ears on a stick. You oh, know, yeah, so you, yeah. you make like oh I guess like elephant ears, but like reshape yeah. them look like human ears. Yeah. 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 Um Yeah, I don't know. Just a lot of I mean you'd have to sell PBR. That's a oh, yeah, PBR for sure. Mm-hmm. I think this is probably more of a Universal Studios ride than a Disney ride, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You could you, you could definitely have um, some type of Kyle MacLachlan themed corn dog, I think for sure. Cause, yeah, because he definitely makes his his rounds with the women in this film. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Not that this is the kind of not that this is a super meaningful observation or anything, but well, like I've seen this movie a lot uh, when I was you know younger and stuff. Um, and then, but I just recently rewatched it a few months ago on, on Blu-ray, and I think for the first time ever, I noticed that Kyle MacLachlan has an earring in this movie. Did you ever notice that? No. Yeah, I, yeah. I have. I have to report a failure on this one. I still only own the DVD of this. One. Oh man, where's well, the Criterion's got Criterion. a really yeah, good version yeah. of it out. I've gotten really lazy with the upgrades. I gotta admit, I can still buy movies, but I really slacked off on the upgrades the last couple of years. This is one because I don't. Even, I don't have the Criterion. I have the uh, the the. MGM Blu-ray yeah. before, which I'm fine with because the most important thing that's on the Criterion one is also on the MGM one, and that's why I'd say this one is worth upgrading. Mm-hmm. Is they, they uncovered that like 90 minutes of footage that Lynch cut out, really, um, and it's on there. Like they don't put it back into the film, but it's just presented as you know, it's kind of like when they did Twin Peaks, the missing pieces, to where you can watch them all in a row. Yeah, um, and there's some really good stuff in there. There's a lot more scenes with Jeffrey and his family at home um, that are really interesting. There's some great other. There's some. Um, there's not there's not too much everything you can pretty much everything Frank Booth he left in because you're not you're not leaving any of that on the cutting room floor. Yeah. But there's a lot of good there's a lot of good uh 
Jeffrey stuff with Kyle McLaughlin. So yeah, it's it's worth checking out. If only David Lynch had the uh, Marvel Studios, uh, you know, mindset. Like I recently rented the new Spider-Man film, and then like they just take a deleted scene and they call it a short film. <laughs> <laughs> David Lynch could have had like. <laughs> A whole separate feature of just the deleted scenes, if you wanted. Well, at least he didn't have that that like weird old mentality of they don't do this anymore. But that early two thousands, where putting some uh, putting like two deleted scenes in and calling it like Blue Velvet Point One or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. With, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a Spider Man Two Point One or something. Yeah, I think there's like an X Men one that was like X Men One Point One or something. It's like, it's like two point one, two and a half, and like what's funny is like. Obviously, it's based on, like, a computer upgrade model. And, like, they're kind of telling you that, like, there, like there's also going to be Spider-Man 2.7, 2.8. Really, and, like, mm-hmm. you're just supposed to keep rebuying these fucking standard <laughs> definition DVDs until the end of time. <laughs> that incrementally uh, have, like, a new scene or two in them. But yeah, but I mean, obviously, I don't, you know, with this film, I didn't want to say too much to ruin it, uh, in case there are still people who uh, haven't seen it. Um, yeah. But but yeah, so I mean, I just I I can't highly recommend recommend this film anymore, honestly. Mm. I mean, just your favorite? Is it your favorite Lynch movie? Or you know, it's it's tough to say, and I take a lot of shit for this. But for many years, I used to say that my favorite David Lynch movie was Lost Highway. Cause just like uh, style, people come around on that one. I love Lost Highway. Yeah, yeah. Stylistically, there's a shit I love, but then mm-hmm. I don't know how to say this because they're both completely fantastical, whatever made up David Lynch universes. But every time I come back and, and revisit this one, I kind of feel like this one ha- feels more real. If that makes any more sense, mm-hmm. like it just feels more emotionally authentic. Whereas, like, I feel like. I feel like uh, Lost Highway is like more of like a David Lynch what if mystery, whereas I feel like yeah. this one is kind of more based on like, obviously I don't want to say autobiographical, but I, I feel like maybe he put more of his, because um, I feel like this one just has a bigger theme of, um, you know, becoming a man and losing childhood innocence in a way. Yeah. I feel like this kind of relates emotionally more to real life. No, I, I think, I mean, I think there's a reason why. Um, I mean, I guess like other than Elephant Man, you know, I think there's a, I think there's a reason why this is the one that, this is the Lynch film that caught on with the mainstream the most, you know, this, um, and it's because like you said, you, you, if you're like into art films and, and cinema as Martin Scorsese might say, you know, you can definitely appreciate things like Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive and a lot of people do, but Blue Velvet has just that right mix of like David Lynch's weirdness, but it never dips into being surreal. Yeah. It's just, it's just saying the real world is, is weird. And I'm going to highlight that. And I think that, um, yeah, I mean, because this was an interesting movie because it came out and it wasn't an, an, a media hit. It kind of like right. was very, it was kind of actually critically lambasted at first and people didn't know what to make of it. And I think it was, was it, I think it might have been Pauline Kale that like wrote a good review of it and kind of forced people to kind of reconsider it. And then this is back when movies could actually be out for months and then people started to kind of come around on it. Yeah, I remember this one was like, like I don't have like a real like crystal memory of it because I was I was young, but like I just remember this was a movie that kind of seemed like it kind of hung around for a while. Mm-hmm. Like it was never something where everybody was like, "Oh, you got to see blah blah blah," and it was just like I don't know. Like like I I'm thinking maybe more is just the the whole Hopper Frank Booth character kind of permeated the the pop culture more and more. 
Yeah. You know, and like 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 a few years later I would say like like obviously Eraserhead was very famous, I put David Lynch on the map. Elephant Man was a huge movie. I I very very uh, vividly remember Dune. Mm-hmm. Uh, the release and kind of what happened with that and the toys and all that. Like I was like into it as a kid because the whole toy line and all that. And then going to see the movie and I remember I liked it as a kid. Like to me, it really was like <laughs> a Star Wars type adventure. But then it dying off. But I feel like this was the movie Blue Velvet uh, and the you know the whatever two three years after it was released. Whereas like this C minute David Lynch's like identity oh, yeah. as a filmmaker and like yeah. and, like everything afterwards like especially twin peaks and even like lost highway and other stuff like it just seemed like it was all in i guess maholland drive too it was like all in the 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 blue velvet mold is like the way people kind of you know because mm-hmm. i mean Eraserhead, it still is like talked about to this day but it's obviously i mean because it's like you know it's like his first movie and it was filmed over the course of years and years it doesn't have like the same style really that, you know, well, yeah, that's, as I was said, that's what's interesting about Lynch is I think if you talk to someone who doesn't like David Lynch, they'll point to obviously Eraserhead and say like, well, I, that's just it's so he's so crazy and everything. But that's Eraserhead is the only movie of his that is like that. Yeah, I mean everything else he he definitely has other films that get surreal, but never again like Eraserhead. Yeah, and you can look at something like Blue Velvet, which has some odd stuff going on in it, but I mean it's easy to follow. Like the story is all yeah, right there. It's very structured. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Blue velvet. All right, so we're gonna move on, and this is where the hopster was really like, bam! You could not ignore him in 1986 no longer, because in November, just totally feel good story, awesome. Everybody jumping up in the theater as the credits roll, high five, and he came out in the film Hoosiers. Mm-hmm. Or as I like to call it, the whitest basketball movie ever made. Oh, so white, so white. So yeah, so I I have a confession. It's pretty shocking. I moved mm-hmm. to Indiana two years after this movie was released, and uh, there is no Hickory High School, even no. though the Indiana Pacers wear these bizarre Hickory tribute, like whatever. There is no Hickory High School. It's it's l- very loosely based on the small school of uh, uh Milan which is yeah. ac- actually was close enough that my high school played them believe it or not so I was deep in the heart of Hoosiers country and I think it was just cuz I didn't really love Indiana that much as a kid I I I wholeheartedly rejected this movie <laughs> and all its feel good spirit and I other than catching pieces of it here and there on cable I haven't seen this movie until this week and I got to admit I feel like a fool because I fell in love with it yeah, no. So I I have a memory of seeing this movie when I was quite young because my you know my dad loved sports movies. So I probably got dragged this in the theater when I was like six, you know. Mm-hmm. But probably more likely watch it on video a lot later. Um, but it's funny, like I I watched it again today for the first time in oh man, I mean over twenty five years probably. Um, and a lot of it like kind of came back to me, like the moment where. They walk into the the uh, the court at the really nice uh, stadium at the end, and mm-hmm. he pulls out the tape measurement, makes the point about how it's the same measurements as their little dumpy one back home. I instantly remember that moment. But what's funny is <laughs> this is gonna, uh, the, my my last remaining memory of Hoosiers was 
my being downstairs at my my parents' house when I was younger, and my parents watching it upstairs, mm-hmm. and it, it had already been a point where I kind of hadn't seen it in a while, but I kept hearing that Hoosiers theme over and over. Yeah. And I remember just like laughing, thinking like, "Good lord!" Like all that movie is is that same theme. <laughs> and, and then and then that was definitely confirmed for me today. So I will say, if you watch yeah. Hoosiers, I really hope you like the Jerry Goldsmith theme yeah. because I'm not sure any movie has ever played its theme song as much as this movie does. Just yeah, it's, nonstop. It's in terms of iconic sports movie themes of the '80s. It's right up there with Chariots of Fire for sure. Yeah. <laughs> But to your point, I, I actually I will admit, and I don't know if this is embarrassing or not, but and I'm sure I'm not alone in this. I until today had in my head that this is a true story. Right. Like I just like it kind of is in my head. I mean, and I knew this was like the same guy who made Rudy, which is a true story, although yeah. they took some liberties for sure, but it's still more of a true story. Um, but when I started watching it today, and the opening credits came on, I was like waiting for that thing to say based on true story. It never did. And then so during the first few minutes, I kind of pulled up my phone and like you, I looked it up. I was like, oh, this is. This is not a true yeah. story. It's just like loosely based on something. And you don't – most like sports movies that are like this well-regarded often are true stories. Yeah. Um, and I'm not quite sure why this isn't just fully based on the, the, the story of the Violent High School Championship, why this is you know slightly reworked. I don't know if maybe it's just so that they could take some like cool story liberties. It but. was – yeah, from what I understand, it was just to make it more of an underdog story because um, – mm-hmm. Basically, what happened was was Milan actually was a very tiny school, j- uh, just like how they portrayed in here. But the only differences was um, the year that they won and all that was was they like it was considered a miracle because obviously they had a small student body, which just happened to have a lot of good players there. But they were actually very much favored favored to be very good that year, so everybody knew they were going to be good. Whereas like this this one. And I love the movie, and I, and I think I just love the style of it. It was like, I thought it was, it does get a little more manipulative towards the end when they start overusing that theme, but I love the whole setup of um, Gene Hackman coming in, who's very much, he's coming out of a long stint in the Navy. He was a college coach who was very much disgraced. You don't know why at first, but, you know, find out mm-hmm. later he punched a player and all this. I just love the whole kind of redemption story and how, like, I don't know, just everything was so authentic, the buildings and everything, and just, like, I thought it was a great period of piece as far as authenticity, but, um, yeah, it was pretty much like this movie, they make it seem like they couldn't have a team, like, they didn't even have enough players to have a team, which which is very yeah. much fictional, you know what I mean? Well, they start, yeah, and they start the season in this with, like, only enough players to be on the court at every, like, for the whole game, yeah. right? So, you know, and, or, well, no, there's, like, one extra, but they had that scene in it, I think it's, it's the first or second game where one of the players gets benched and he doesn't allow the other player to go in right. because he's already like benched him. So they have to finish the game with Play only with four, four players, players on the court, yeah. Yeah. which I don't yeah. even, I don't even know how that's possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, like, and it's also weird too. Cause like at those first practice, like, uh, the one kid walks out and then like, he's gone for like 30 minutes of the movie. And then like, I had to actually rewind it and check it out. Like he actually does come back on the team later. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm just, I'm just like, so there's like a lot of gaps in here because it it goes really more too into the personal life of uh, Gene Hackman. So there's like you know there like the players rejoin the team as the season goes on and stuff, but like you just don't know that they're just suddenly in the the, the thing again or whatever. Because yeah, yeah, and I would say like watching it today, uh, if if I think there's like a like a, a criticism to be lobbed at this film because I do I liked it a lot too. I think it is a really really well done sports movie. But I'd say like my biggest criticism is in particular the character of Jimmy, who kind of like everything like hinges on if this one kid plays yeah. on the team, right? 
he's not much of a character. He no. really is, comes across like a plot device in the movie. Yeah. Because there's this whole thing about how after the previous coach died, he doesn't want to play anymore. Yeah. And then he just happens to decide to come back right at the moment where it's necessary to keep, you know, yeah, it made no sense. Like job. Yeah, and they never really explained why he's so like why would he want to play for this coach? You know, yeah. they don't have any scenes establishing that relationship early on, and then he's really only after that. It kind of actually comes across like he the team does just need him really bad, or right? they start yeah. winning when he gets back, and that kind of makes you almost more like, well, now you're not saying anything great about Gene Hackman's coaching; you're just making it seem like right this player is the only thing that matters. But but that's a, that's a small criticism, but it's just something I noticed today. Yeah, so I mean. It definitely has like some typical sports things, but getting into Hopper's part, Hopper, uh, one of the the boys on the team, um, Hopper is his father, who is like the embarrassing town drunk, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And uh, I gotta say, like, um, pretty much every scene, like he doesn't have a whole lot of screen time. Like, what would you say, Hopper's probably on screen for maybe fifteen minutes of this film? Yeah, may- maybe. Like you said, yeah, twelve to fifteen minutes. But I have to say, like, I don't know. There was something electric about him. And I, maybe it was just because he was such a stark contrast to um, Gene Hackman's character. But I was just like, because wasn't Hopper nominated for uh, Best Supporting Actor in this? Yeah, so this is the movie that really, this is the one that definitely cements his com- his comeback. Because he gets right. a Best Supporting Actor nomination for this. And Which I, on one level is kind of funny and tells you a lot about Hollywood. That this is the one they decided to honor instead of Blue Velvet. Yeah, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of to be expected, I guess. But, yeah, but um, but yeah. So like, basically, the storyline with Hopper's character is that he actually is, you know, um, like kind of like an idiot savant almost. What you say in terms of basketball knowledge, like, mm-hmm. like he can't like manage anything in his life. He's a complete screw up. But like, he knows so much about basketball, and like they never really go and to depth really about like how he acquired all this but i thought it was interesting too though like as much as he's into basketball he doesn't really come off as like the type of father who forced his son to play you know what i mean like oh yeah it's just kind of coincidence when hackman finds this out you know he invites him to be assistant coach on the team um you know obviously with the uh the the one stipulation that that hopper stay um sober so, mm-hmm. and he holds it together pretty much. And I'm, I just want to get your take on this. He Hopper holds it together pretty well with his sobriety until the point where Hackman intentionally gets kicked out of the game just to force Hopper to take over his coach. And then that kind of ends up being the, 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 um, the event that causes Hopper to break down and go back to being a drunk. Like, I mean, I, I like, what you, how did you take that? Like, well, he has that he has that moment of like victory first, right? Yeah. So, like you said, like so Hackman does that. So, before I before I answer your question, I will say one thing I, I loved about the movie watching it today was thinking about how. Well, first of all, it's just great to see Gene Hackman again, and man, yeah. every time I watch a movie with him, I just think about how much I miss him as a, as a presence. Um, but yeah, also in that same realm of being nostalgic for Gene Hackman, just nostalgic for how subtle movies used to be, because the whole idea of Gene Hackman only really meets this guy like twice before he decides to like bring him on as an assistant coach. And you can think like, well, why is he, why would he give this drunk this like level of responsibility? As you said, he says like, you know, if you stay sober, great. If I smell one, you know, bit of booze on you, I'll kick you off. And on one level you can be like, well, like he's just doing it for the benefit of his, of his son who's on his team um, or Dennis Hopper's son. 
but really realize that he's doing it because he's also someone who is in you know this coming here for him as a check is a second chance yeah and he's been disgraced and so he sees that in dennis hopper and i love how the movie never tells you that or has heckman verbalize that and it obviously would today if it was made it would like beat you over the head with that yeah but instead of just you you figure that out as you watch it to your point about the the slipping back, I did I did kind of forget about that. Although then I remembered that that he's in a hospital for like the last game. Yeah. But um, it is interesting that it allows him to slip back. But I, again, I, I kind of like it because it it does say that addiction's not easy, right? right. It is always a battle, and it's not going to be as simple. You can't. It, it would be a lot hokier and a lot more maudlin if he just was like. Yeah, well, Hackman gave me this job. We won one game because of me, and now I'm cured of this forever. You right. know, so it's definitely more realistic that he does have like a backslide. But I think what's important about that backsliding scene is that it doesn't force his son to like completely turn on him. Right. His son still like come, comes to the hospital and says like, you know, no, it's it's okay. You're gonna be okay because he still because he sees his dad trying to improve, and that's what matters. Right. But again, like, you know, we said for each of these, like how it connects to something, like it's not hard to see at all how Dennis Hopper could have attached to this character. Yeah. Cause here you have him trying to make his way back into Hollywood after a lot of personal demons and a lot of people turning their backs on him. And I'm sure it was very freeing and very kind of um, cathartic to play this character who's going through that himself. And I, I just think the movie really works and is really good because like you said, how understated it is. Like each scene is like a slow build. You get little bits of information, little bits of character development throughout the entire movie. And like, you know, it's, it's very easy to be kind of like over the top and dramatic and whatever with these scenes of addiction in films. And I mean, in this case, obviously Dennis Hopper have gone through this in his real life. Um, but even his scenes of his addiction and all that, and, like, even, like, I always, before I knew this, like, had seen this movie all the way through, I always knew about the big scene where he shows up drunk to the game and walks onto the court and they have to, like, even that scene when I finally, like, watched it in the context of the movie, it's, compared to what a lot of movies would do and how they would handle it, it even that's mm-hmm. pretty understated, you know what I mean? Yeah, because like, he, doesn't, he doesn't make, like, a big fool of himself or anything. No. He just kind of walks onto the court and he's actually, what he's yelling about is right. Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. just drunk, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's like that thing where, like, obviously the whole the whole gym is like kind of like you know like what's going on like you know the game is being interrupted because this guy walked out on the court but like you know because uh, I because it happens in the visiting team's gym from what I remember um, mm-hmm. so it's not even like the whole town really even knows who he is or like you know what I mean it's just it's just obviously just important that his son sees him and Gene Hackman sees him and you know they they realize what have ha- what has happened um, but yeah I mean I just. You know, especially for sports movies and especially if you're somebody like, like as, as much as there is kind of like a, a feel good ending to this film, it it's also like, I don't know, just the way it just kind of like wraps up very quickly right after the end of the game. And it just ends with like the kid in the gym and then you just see mm-hmm. like the old kind of like faded picture up on the wall of the championship team. Like, I don't know, like there's something kind of like nice and kind of, um, uh, I wouldn't say sad, but it's just, it just really like, you know, it really like, cause earlier in, in the, the film, Hackman tells Barbara Hershey, cause she's, she's telling him, you know, oh, you know, don't force, uh, you know, Jimmy to play and all this and, and, you know, and people want to use him for this and all that. And Hackman, you know, tells her, you know, most people would kill to feel like a God for just a few moments. And it kind of is that it's just like, yeah, the, the, well, I think, 
I was, just, I was just gonna say like kind of like the the I guess the lesson of the film is like life is hard and you do actually lose you know the majority of the time and you just want to savor those moments where you come out on top. Yeah. Yeah, I mean to your to your point to that and to have the the movie being like sweet but also maudlin at the end is like there's no guarantee at the end that Dennis Avery is gonna stay sober. Right. I mean like we don't know. Um, but even beyond that, I was thinking I was thinking about that last shot and what I was. You know that that kid playing basketball at the very end. You don't know like when that's supposed to be, but as right. you said, that picture looks that picture does look kind of faded. Yeah. And what I particularly noticed is that it's the only picture up in the gym. Right. So like they didn't win next year. No. You know, like they didn't they didn't they didn't keep winning. You don't know if like Gene Hackman stayed or what happened. And it is that idea that you really like that that moment was probably the best moment of like all their lives. Right. And like not to say it was necessarily downhill after that, but yeah. that that was it for them. Like that was right. the moment. You know. So yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty like stirring ending as well. Yeah, for sure. I just I just you know with, with I think what makes the movie is the combination of Hopper's story and Gene Hackman's story. Um, I think that is what kind of because I enjoy I enjoy just about any sports movie really, uh, but but that's what kind of you know not to sound too Martin Scorsese ish on this, <laughs> but but that those kind of more serious <laughs> elements of the film is what makes this more cinema and just less sports propaganda you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah no i'll agree because i i don't just automatically like most and most sports movies yeah. uh i'm actually you like there's not many sports movies i like and there's a handful and the, they are the ones that actually are the most effective at, at stirring those emotions and being like compelling character pieces too um yeah. and this this like i'm glad i revisited it because i kind of forgot that this was one of those i mean i remember that I, and i knew it was good but watching it today i was like oh yeah this is really good and like i i'm i'm gonna make sure i don't take another 25 years or so to watch it again yeah for sure so yeah so that was obviously he he played a, a dark character in this film dennis hopper but but that's pretty much uh, for his run of 1986 films, that's kind of the end of the uh, the yeah. glory. The rest of it is kind of more fear and loathing from this point out. <laughs> <laughs> so, this was the film we were talking about. Um, premiered at um, it was TIFF, right? Sorry. Toronto Tiff, International yep. Film Festival, which is a really big film festival, and it's just one of those major ones where you show your movie there, and it usually gets picked up for distribution. So, this showed in, I believe it was September of '86. It showed there. And mm-hmm. then the distributor picked it up, put it out the following spring. But but we're going to be talking about River's Edge, which basically, I like, I don't know how you feel about this, Trev, and us just coming off like, like Blue Velvet. Like, I always, I always knew as a kid, I didn't discover River's Edge until it was like on cable. Um, and I think partially too, because like, I think I've kind of discovered it halfway through, so I didn't really know the setup of the movie. And I kind of just remembered the, the younger kids spying on Hopper out in his shack or whatever. So, like, to me, the River's Edge is, like, especially for it being contemporary with Blue Velvet, like, literally being made at the exact same time, pretty much. This is, like, the most David Lynch, non-David Lynch film, I would say. <laughs> Well, it's funny you say that because I and I don't know if you're aware of this, but the director Tim Hunter actually did go on to direct episodes of Twin Peaks. No, I didn't know that. that I, makes I believe sense. If, my, if my memory serves, he uh, directed the episode before the finale. Though, and so Lynch did the finale, and Hunter does the one before. I might be slightly off on that, but I think that's right. But he did. I think he did like three or four episodes of Twin Peaks. But if I and I, I believe he was kind of like 
sought for that because Lynch kind of saw that yeah. same connection, like in their work. Yeah. And no, you're right. I mean, so without like the odder surreal elements, but still there's a lot of this movie that's, that feels like it could have easily fed into D- Twin Peaks. I, I'm, I'm sure Lynch saw this. Um, I mean, geez, one of the poster, the primary poster for this is very Twin Peaks. Ian. Oh, and yeah. It's just kind of her laying in the field there. Um, so we should say this is a film, um, Again, this is actually another when It's not a true story, but it's loosely based on something that actually happened. Um, but this is about a group of teenagers in, in Northern California, an area you know fairly well. Um, and one of them um, murders his girlfriend. And his reaction to it is interesting in that he, he murders her out in a field and he just kind of goes and tells all of his friends that he did it. Right. And the friends don't believe him. He takes them out to the body and they are – well, to say their reaction is kind of to talk about the theme of the movie, but they're oddly apathetic about it. Yeah. But the one thing they kind of get motivated by uh, is that the, the, the ringleader, played by Crispin Glover, decides that, well, she's dead. There's nothing we can do about that. But the one thing we can do is try to protect our friend who murdered her. Right. So let's all make a pact not to tell anyone. He goes back later that night to, like, dispose the body. Um, but, of course, because it's a movie and you need some kind of stakes – the character of Matt, played by Keanu Reeves, is the one who kind of starts to have, you know, uh, his conscience gets to him. Right. And he, and he decides to to talk to the police about it. And then, you know, then we, we don't need to go much further with that. But that's the overall idea of this movie. But, but so what what makes this movie so haunting and like so effective is just that that look, especially at a time in the 80s when most movies about teenagers were those like kind of like dumb, broad sex comedies. Right. A look at like what a way more realistic look right at how, how like just bleak te- being a teenager can be. And that kind of in particular in some areas of the country where it's just, you know, you can tell this is a community wracked by drug use and just kind of overall disenchant or disenfranchisement and stuff. And these kids not realizing the enormity of a friend of theirs being murdered and the reaction to it. And it's just so, so dark and so haunting, but also there is like a lot of, again, a lot of oddly f- funny, dark comedy particularly with uh, Crispin Glover. Um, I don't know. I love this. I mean, yeah, I love this movie. I'm actually surprised we never did this movie as just a commentary episode on the show. Now that I think about it, I, I, I wanted to, I brought it up and I bought the Blu-ray like a year or two ago and I, I've always meant to. And so, I mean, if you're down for it for some time, I would love to, to be quite Yeah, honest. no, I would too. Cause I, I love, I mean, I've seen this movie a bunch. I, my yeah. DVD copy of this is signed by Crispin Glover. This is one of the ones I took to have him signed because nice. I, I love him in this. And, uh, is, yeah. that, is that the time you uh, went and uh, talked to him about the clowny clown clown? Uh, it was we, we didn't talk about that, but it was he was showing the first movie that he directed at the Ann Arbor Film Festival. Is that oh, yeah. um, what, what? What is, is it? it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to um, see that. I want to go to if like like believe it or not, just yesterday I signed up to the Crispin Glover mailing list. Um, mm-hmm. I had looked at some point at some like kind of itinerary thing. Like he was a few hundred miles away from me a couple years ago, and I just didn't know about it till after it happened. You know what I mean? Yeah, nah. He's and still kind of he's still constantly touring with. Those yeah, movies. yeah. I'm just really hope even if it's like something if I can find out about it long enough in advance, even if I have to take like half a week off work to travel, I, it's something I really want to do. Yeah. And I just love this movie because it's um, it, what's what's kind of like ironic and weird about it. And I think something has to do with is like that that age that the kids are at in the movie. Like you said, how they have like a non reaction. Like I think in a weird way, like 
you would some people might see that and say like oh this movie's like so phony like why would there even be a debate people would just react and i think it's like that thing of like we like to think how we would know people react but there's something about teens and just not knowing the real way of the world because there was actually a um uh it was it was later it was like the late 80s early 90s but i remember uh reading a book um, where something very similar happened just a few hours away from where I lived in Indiana. And, and like, it was a pretty famous case. And then they wrote a book about it. My friend bought the book, then he loaned it to me. But it was, it was oddly very similar to this, where a group of teenage girls kidnapped this, like, slightly younger girl. She was, like, 13 or 14. And, like, they slowly killed and tortured her. And then, like, just set her on fire while she was still alive. Like, all kinds of heinous stuff. And then kind of just went about their business afterwards. And it wasn't until, like, finally, like, you know, people started, you know, the the authorities started investigating and finally just, you know, obviously one of the girls cracked and told on the other ones. But there is this kind of, like, weird thing of, like, I don't know, like, teenage apathy when these things happen. And I don't know if some of it has to do with just the psychological development at that time that, that, like, you don't know how to process death or maybe you just don't get the... um, I don't know what you would say the the enormity of uh, the situation. Like I think another situation is um, is the 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 real life case that the movie Boys Don't Cry is based on. So I mean, like mm-hmm. for some reason, this happens amongst teens. Yeah. I've- well, like I said, I mean, I so I've got it up right now in front of me. Like this movie is based on a, a, a like loosely based on a true story. And I mean, this is so this the real thing was something that happened in Milpitas, California, in 1981. And it was, uh, it says Marcy Renee Conrad, 14, was killed on November 1981 by 16 year old Anthony Jacques Broussard. Um, after the murder, Broussard invited friends from his high school to view her corpse. Reports indicate that Broussard bragged about her death at school and showed the body to at least 10 people. After two days, two students finally broke ranks with the others and notified police. When the other students were asked why they had not alerted police, they responded they didn't want to get in trouble. So yeah, I mean this yeah. this happens, you know. And and I and I think kind of like those cases as time went on, because you know, like when I saw this movie as a kid, it was just like a weird movie, you know. But like when when you when you start finding out that there are like you know cases where this happens, I think it puts like another, you know, not just in a weird movie fantasy world way, it puts like a weird. Um, you know, extra level of just kind of spine chilliness to it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, you can make you can you can make American Pie if you want, right? But I think right. every once in a while, America needs a movie like this or like Bully to like remind you of like what's really happening out there. For sure. You know, or maybe like even that we have that. Uh, what's that show on HBO right now with Zendaya that's like freaking out everybody because they didn't realize kids were this like sexually active and like you know like I don't know I'm I'm. I, I've currently got the discount um, subscription is just stars and Showtime, so I, <laughs> okay. I, I'm, I'm pretty like I'm pretty much been a year removed from HBO, so. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's Euphoria. That's the name Euphoria, of the show. Okay. But but yeah, so like everyone's like, I think these movies freak out like adults. But then I, I'm I'm betting like the teenagers of the '80s watch this movie and are just like, yeah, I recognize this. Yeah. I recognize these kids, right? Because this is this is what was happening. For sure. And I guess I guess we should kind of like, I guess it kind of loosely takes place over two days or whatever, but it's kind of like framed in one of those like weird kind of like night in an adventure way. So like basically you have like the main group of kids and then you have like a slightly younger group of kids. Mm-hmm. And um, a big part of it is uh, Keanu's younger brother and another boy, like they kind of happen upon... Um, 
Dennis Hopper and spy on him a lot. And uh, Crispin Glover's character interacts with Dennis Hopper too, right? Yeah, that's well. So we should we we're, this is all about Hopper, so we should mention Hopper. Yeah, I'm, I'm just having a hard time explaining how Hopper comes into the story. <laughs> well, so so Hopper is a character named Feck, who is um, he's basically set up as he's essentially the drug connection for all the kids in town. Mm-hmm. He's who you go to get drugs, but he is this like kind of odd loner that lives in this house. It's even said in the movie that he hasn't left the house in years. Yeah, um, we get a little bit of his backstory. He he lives there with a a sex doll that yeah. he loves like and a, dances like with. a blow up style doll right yeah yeah this was way before like real dolls or anything yeah. it's just like an old school blow up doll but he's like has this kind of like loving relationship with it um if you come to his house to get drugs first he will pull a gun on you that's pretty yeah. pretty standard but he also he brags constantly about how he murdered a, a girl in the past right kind of like kind of constantly talks about it so when crispin glover decides that he needs to like stash their friend who did the murder somewhere his first thought is, well, I'll take him to Feck's house because Feck will understand. Feck murdered someone. And so then you have Feck and um, Samson. Samson is the, the killer, played by also really well played by Dan Roebuck, who's another actor I feel like never gets like a – never was quite as big as he should have been. I, I agree. I, I like him a lot but, too. Yeah. Um, but so the, then you kind of – not – buddy comedy is not the right word. But you get, no. you get a, like, a lot of sequences with Feck and, and Samson together. And those are interesting because it is, you know, Samson is very, his reaction to what he's done is, is of course, very odd and very strange. And then here he is kind of partnered up with this other character who often talks about murdering someone. And obviously we don't want to spoil anything, but the relationship between those two ends up being like, you know, kind of a crucial part of this film as well. Yeah. And I I think this one in terms of, um, you know, it was released just a few months yeah, just a few months after, like, Blue Velvet and stuff. I, th- I think definitely, you know, a- and Hoosiers, of course, but, like, I, I think, obviously, Blew Velvet and um, Hoosiers, like, I feel like this hot performance kind of gets overshadowed a little bit, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Like, when you, like, this movie, it's, I mean, and it definitely is more of a supporting role than, obviously, Frank Booth. I mean, Frank Booth is very crucial to the plot in Blue Velvet. But still, I, I, I still think it's, like, one of the, the kind of like more fun hopper performances of the era for sure. And it's, and it's definitely, it's, it's definitely a hundred as much as it is a a pretty fucked up and potentially evil. If what he's saying is true type character, it's, it's still 180 degrees different for Frank Booth. It's not like hopper is recycling anything here, you know? No. Yeah. But yeah, but what do you, that scene with him well, and the doll is initially all I remembered for years after initially seeing this movie. I do want to ask. I know I know Hopper's the man of the moment, yeah. but I, I do want to ask what is your what is your take on Crispin Glover's performance in this? Because I know that's certainly divisive, and it, I just I like it. It says on, it says on Wikipedia that Tim Hunter was he admits he was really concerned about what Crispin Glover was doing at first. He's like, yeah, I don't know about, about this, but he's like, but I guess I'll, I'll just let him go with it because I think in the end it'll be okay. But Crispin Glover is definitely giving a very unique performance in this. And my take has always been, I think it's, I actually find it so necessary because I just think of how, how dark and heavy this movie would be if you didn't have Crispin Glover to laugh at. Right. And I wonder if that's even what, what Glover was thinking, because it just feels like it gives the movie some levity that I think it kind of needs in a way. Well, well that too. And to me, it's, it's just so perfect. And, and I, I've kind of like, I've always been a Crispin Glover fan for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, I love that. But but I 
I th- I think he's a lot more astute about like I know obviously he's done some things that were kind of like over the top you know the infamous David Letterman performance whatnot I think he's more astute as a storyteller about what is needed and, and what isn't and it's mm-hmm. like if you were to do like kind of that YouTube thing of like oh all the Crispin Glover scenes of uh, you know whatever River's Edge supercut on YouTube I, like taken out of context I could see. Like, you know, people thinking the performance is, like, definitely, like, you know, either too over the top or weird. But I think if you look at, like, the round kind of circle picture of what this film needs, I think it's great. Because, like, you have, like, the Daniel Robot character who's done this heinous deed, which, like, everybody's reacting to. And the guy's pretty much, like, a bump on the log. Like, whether that be shock or just, you know, emotional emptiness or what. And then you have Keanu who, like, even though he's kind of part of, like, this lower whatever working class you know community of kids and these kind of like they're kind because we haven't really mentioned they're kind of like the heavy metal kids of the time what Mm -hmm. you say yeah oh yeah they're all wearing like iron maiden shirts yeah yeah. yeah. but i mean he's he's keanu's clearly the the for lack of a better word like the hero of the story and the guy like you would relate to the most as an audience viewer so, like, mm-hmm. you kind of have, like, this circle of friends, and in order to tell this story of, like, them all reacting to it, and who goes to what, because cause Kristen Glover, besides him, like, being as wild as he is, he's the guy who really is like, oh, we gotta help our friend, we, we gotta get him away, we gotta have him hide out, we gotta do all this, so, I mean... It's kind of like, you know, positive and negative ions or whatever. It's like, to me, he's the perfect counterpoint to what Keanu is doing. So it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, and then in the middle is Daniel Roebuck, who's really just like, for lack of a better term, he's basically like this, like, fucked up, whatever, dark version of Baby Huey that everybody's either trying to, you know, either take care of or like, you know basically turn in for what he's done make him pay for what he's done so i mean mm-hmm. I, I i've always like i to me this has always been in the top three of crispin glover performances i mean um i like i would rank probably his stuff just probably back to the future number one this number two and then like you know like like even like like a very similar perf- not a similar performance but a similar like thing is like if you look at Friday the 13th, uh, I think it's part four he's in. Like, he's so, like, you know, in, in, like, one of the whatever things talked about is his weird dance and all that kind of shit in that movie. But it's just, like, the guy brings something weird in left field in these movies, but when you view it in the context of the movie, I think it always works. I mean, is there any, like, movie you can think of that you've seen where crispin because i mean there's actually been movies where crispin glover's been kind of like normal too but like mm-hmm. like i th- the ones where he goes nuts um i don't know like to me it, it just it, it like i just always assume it's more the director is on board and kind of guiding him but it, that's I, what mean, I, mean. You, I mean to your point you even look at something as like silly and maybe like you know like fluff as like charlie's angels yeah, right yeah. you consider like his part in that which i think is great and you might already know this if you're a fan of his, but like that part was written as like a very generic kind right. of, you know, henchman. And it was Glover's idea who said like, you know what? I should like never talk in this. Right. And first of all, for an actor to say like, Hey, I don't want any lines. Right. That's, that's, that doesn't happen very often, but he was dead right. That that's what made that character kind of actually chilling and memorable. 
and to the point where then they bring him back in the sequel and kind of have him turn good because it's like people like that character so much you you know then you have to do something else with them but yeah i think you're right is that he he just always understands what to bring he's like he's like nicholas cage in that way right and he's been lucky in that he hasn't done as much as cage so he's never he hasn't been like memeified in the same way to right. the point where cage kind of there's a lot of people who won't give cage any credit for how talented he is because people only look at the negative thing and glover's played a, his play his career much differently um he's been very open about how he makes some of these like he's made quite a few like uh like little b horror movies mm-hmm. and and he'll flat out admit that he does those because they finance his own personal weird right. artistic stuff but you can tell he still actually enjoys doing them and brings right. something to the part. And I've liked quite a few of those. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've liked him and in, 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 in pretty much everything I've seen him. And I've never looked at him and thought like, wow, he really missed the, missed the mark on that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, and I, and I just, even just recently I've seen more interviews with him and like, I definitely get where like, he's not maybe everybody's cup of tea and some like his thoughts and his things are like either controversial or misunderstood. But, um, I I've just there's nothing about the guy that like he's definitely not he's operating in a like kind of like a weird mental space that a lot of actors wouldn't be but there's nothing that comes off to me as the guy of like hey he's doing this to steal the show or he's being weird mm-hmm. to get attention it just it just you know he's he's kind of manifesting this like yeah I always thought this was one of his best performances and I'm I'm kind of surprised to hear like the director was kind of like not sure if it was going to work or not because like I think this movie just like how you said with the Charlie's Angels thing um i think this is like a movie that would actually suffer for if you either you didn't have crispin glover in it or you had crispin doing just like more of a generic like whatever role you know what i mean um i don't know like like to me that i mean it's like it's like to me he's like an ingredient in a dish where it's like that ingredient is not going to work in the majority of, of food dishes out there but if you use just enough of it and the right dish, it's it's going to be great. You know what I mean? And like, yeah, that's how I always feel. I mean, even little stuff like uh, I don't know how familiar you are with this movie, Trev, but like, even stuff like um, his his tiny little part in like at close range, I feel like he adds such a like authenticity to that. And um, and like a well, I don't know about a similar actor, but also in that movie, Stephen Jeffries in that movie, it's like. There's these guys where like you need to have a certain amount of quirk in these movies to to kind of liven them up and kind of round out the picture and you know make yeah them, so, you know make them less makes, bland. If, if it makes you feel any better, I just reread that and it was the producer who was who was okay. worried about it, okay. not the director. Yeah, yeah that makes more sense because producers don't know. You know. Well, yeah. <laughs> First of all, Bob Gale don't know. He's still making up stories about Christopher yeah. Glover to this day. <laughs> Yeah, and he has new stories every time they do a Back to the Future like re-release. He has a new Crispin Glover story to come out. <laughs> yeah. so, so somehow Crispin Glover is still doing things on the 1985 set of Back to the Future that are just now being discovered. But uh, I mean, I've been I've been beating my drum on this for a long time. But he's still if if I had the choice of who would I like to see play uh, the Joker the most, oh, as like yeah. a, a comic accurate version of the Joker, yeah. Glover has always been my choice. And I mean, like, Jesus, like yeah. since I since I first thought that, eighteen different people have played the Joker. I feel like, and yet for some reason they never go to this guy. I, you know, I, I always thought it, um, like like you know how like when the nineteen eighty nine Batman film came out, and um, besides like the official movie merchandise, they kind of just ramped up Batman merchandise in general. So there was like all these T shirts of the Joker, you know, 
And just mm-hmm. seeing all like that image over and over, the comic book version of the Joker from like the late '80s, I guess maybe like the Killing Joke era Joker or whatever. Like I just always felt like, how in the fuck do they not, you know, get Chris McGlover? And like it's kind of funny because when I was going down this rabbit hole um, over the weekend, uh, I saw an interview from like maybe seven or eight years ago where some girl just asked him. You know, like like his thoughts on playing the Joker, and he was talking about like it's very flattering that you know, basically, you know, he has like seen the online or whatever, like just the fan sentiment that he would be a great Joker. Mm-hmm. But um, he basically just said, you know, in order to get that role, like it's not just as simple as whether I would be good for the role or not. He said I would have to do certain other films that would kind of make me more marketable to where they would cast me. But I, yeah. I I agree completely, and and I'm still kind of like I don't know like the 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 other character that like I've always thought he should play the other comic book character I always thought he should play is I always thought he should play uh what's his name Cletus Cassidy who turns into Carnage I mean oh yeah when you read the original um, introduction to that character like I was like reading it thinking it it was they were like trying to be like Crispin Glover <laughs> you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But no, I agree 100. percent I'll tell you what, man. There was something. There was something in the water on this set, also, yeah. because people talk about how Keanu Reeves doesn't age, but yeah. Crispin Glover also yeah. like does not age at all. And then to that element too, we should also mention this is also the first movie of one of my big crushes around this time, uh, Ione Sky. Oh yeah. Who also, if you see her now, is still is not yeah. aged very much. Like man, I don't know what was what was going on in this set, but. So, like, this is just another weird trivia since we're going down weird trivia rabbit holes. Um, you're probably too young to remember this. This was, like, the video game system that came out right around the time I was uh, graduating high school. But do you remember something, Trev, called the Sega Saturn? Oh, yeah. I yeah. remember Saturn, yeah. Yeah. So, they, the whole kind of hook of that was, like, they're, you know, Sega always try to have, like, an avant-garde type of thing in like the 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 eighties and early nineties, whatever. Um there was actually print magazines. There was like three or four different celebrities they got. And I this was like before Ice Cube was like the monolith that he was now. So they had Ice Cube like and they're weird kinda like weird kind of artistic ads that would like have like the top of their heads cut off and replaced with a Sega Saturn logo. So there was like one that was like a Ice Cube Sega Saturn ad. And there actually was a Ioni Sky Sega Saturn ad. And I had it in some magazine way back when. I probably still don't have the magazine. But uh, I always, like, because even then I knew who she was. And I knew she was pretty much involved in, like, independent films and whatnot. I always thought that was, like, the strangest corporate synergy with, like, <laughs> advertising, like, ever. So, anyway, enough weird rabbit holes. Uh, yeah, River's Edge, I mean, just kind of like, I mean, I guess we're kind of on a good streak here with TCM, Blue Velvet, Hoosiers, River's Edge. I can't mm-hmm. recommend these films highly, more highly enough. It, it's none, Out of those four, none of them are kind of like, yeah, you'll be okay if you miss this one or that one. Like, I pretty much, you know, recommend them full strength to anybody. Yeah, no, they're four, they're four, uh, I mean, there's three of those are just like all time favorites for me. And then Hoosiers, it was great to like rediscover that and be like, yeah. oh yeah, you kind of, you kind of did sleep on us a little bit too much for, for some of those years. So, yeah. So now we're heading to the home stretch and now we're going to be talking about from this, uh, era, uh, Dennis Hopper. This was more one that flew under the radar so much yeah. to the point that this film has been out of print since Laserdisc 
from what I understand. Mm -hmm. So, Trev, why don't you talk a little bit about American Way, a.k.a. Riders of the Storm. Yeah, so I I had never heard of this until we decided to do this episode. And then looking at IMDb, I was like, oh, wait, there's one more that maybe we should talk about. And as Coach just said, this then turned into, like, well, how do I watch this? (laughs) Because it sounds like something I want to see, but... There's there's no DVD, um, you know it's not readily available on any streaming service. Right. Thankfully, as is the case with many of those films, the time forgets. Uh, it's it's available to watch on YouTube. Um, and watching it a couple days ago, I I understand why. Because here's the thing about this film, um, it seems like it should be a big cult movie today, like for for a few different reasons. Dennis yeah. Hopper being a part of that, and then just like what it's about, and just like the style of it, which we'll talk about in a moment. You know everything about it. And I was like, well, how, I wonder why, like, in an age when all these, like, little weird cult films are getting snatched up by all these, you know, boutique labels, what's the deal with this one? And it's got to be music rights, right? Oh, yeah. Because this one is just full of, like, well, big music. Yeah. And, and, I, you know, DVD was really infamous. The DVD era, Trev, was really infamous for films being released with a uh, alternate soundtrack, not having the songs that originally. Yeah, but, yeah. but but I agree wholeheartedly. It's the music, but also there's like another extra la- level where there's actually like video in yeah. this of all different performances and different clips from a thousand different places. Which I would think for any studio now to track it down and renegotiate the light the rights to use all that video. I mean, it's just virtually impossible. Yeah. So, because I'm guessing a lot of our listeners have not heard of this movie, and I probably have not watched it recently like you and I did, um, what this is about, and it is a very interesting concept for a film, is at the beginning, well, depending on which version you watch, at the beginning right. you might get some text which explains this. Right. Um, but it basically talks about the idea of psyops, which in the Vietnam War there was uh, like American psyop crews who were basically tasked with kind of, you know, getting into the head of the enemy by with pirate radio signals, pirate television signals, um, to kind of try and like, you know, use propaganda in a different way. And that was eventually shut down. But the heroes of this movie, because this movie takes place in the 80s, are uh, a crew of American Vietnam veterans who were part of this like psyops group and flew this this B-29 bomber plane around doing it. But when the war ended, they never landed. They just kind of stayed up in the air and did not kind of come, they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't kind of recognize that the war was over. They just kind of kept flying. And essentially they fly around America now and they use this plane as like a, uh, you know, a flying home base for their own pirate TV station called SNM TV. And essentially they are actually beaming out wherever they fly to uh, a pirate, as we said, TV and radio signal, taking over the airwaves, taking over the TV waves. And uh, this is in an America that is becoming increasingly conservative. Right. And they and they decide, you know, most of the crew wants to finally be done with it. But they're they're basically viewed they're viewed as criminals. And throughout the whole film, Hopper's trying to broker a deal that will allow them to land and not be arrested. Right. And essentially what he's looking for is them to have a deal where they'll be given their own actual TV station and they'll also have like kind of, you know, immunity from the crimes they they are now considered to have to have committed. But he also decides before we're gonna have, we're gonna do one last mission because this movie's taking place during a, an election year, and the election is heating up, and the, the primary candidate that looks like she's going to win is a very like Margaret Thatcher esque uh, politician right. called uh, called uh, Senator Westinghouse, and Dennis Hopper <laughs> yes. uh, decides to make it his mission to sabotage her campaign because he sees her as 
it's actually it is an interesting moment of kind of you know nobility where it's not ju- it's not just that he's bothered by her because she's because con- she's conservative and they're all liberal. It's more he says if she gets elected, she's going to cause another war, which we do know is true. We see them talking like in warhawk terms, and he doesn't want to see any more soldiers sent to like another pointless war like they like they lived through. Right. So he kind of rallies the crew to kind of kind of kind of take her out. So that's a, that's a pretty unique concept, and then the movie is. This is the weird thing about this movie. So I don't know how you feel about a goat, but I'll say it's it's an interesting concept. It's got, you know, Dennis Hopper in, in, a, in a kind of a role that's perfect for him. Yeah, it but, is style, yeah. It's stylistically very weird. It seems like everything about this seems like I should like it. But unfortunately, I felt like it was just kind of boring. Yeah, like, like I felt like this movie could have been really tightened up. Like, I because it's. At the heart of it, like once you really get into it, it's it's a very simple kind of like one note story, but mm. it's it's like the running time is like a, like ten or fifteen minutes, a little too long. Like every scene just seems like it drags, yeah. or is like about twenty seconds too long. So like you and never... part of it is too like they're just like on a plane, you know. Yeah. Like that's that's kind of part of the problem. And it's by... obviously like a phony set. I mean, let's be honest about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's like there's there's one crew member who has a who has a jetpack and right, he's like yeah. the cameraman and he can leave the plane and come down and but because the rest of them are just kind of only in this one set it kind of that hampers the drama of the film a little bit too i think like it's kind of like a weird thing because like you could really only do this on your phone i discovered but you can make youtube videos play in like faster speeds and i was kind of do that doing that I, I i still got about the last 15 20 minutes to finish with this movie but i was kind of doing that trying to get this in before we recorded it today and in a weird way watching it sped up actually gave the film more of like the madcap energy that you want this film to have like mm-hmm. like the best way i can like describe it is um it reminds me a lot stylistically just both in tone and humor of um the bill murray hunter s thompson movie where the buffalo roam mm-hmm. like, it kind of has like that weird like fe- feeling of like it's trying to be very satirical it has like all these like you know combinations and like it's supposed to like it's supposed to be very like I know it sounds political but it's it's supposed to be very madcap and wacky. It just you know other than little like scenes here and there, it just doesn't re- reach like the right um, kind of pacing fever pitch that you would want out of this. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. You know what movie it reminded me of, and it's the same thing where I feel like this might sound like a stretch because I don't think this is anywhere near as good as this film. But like in terms of that satire and what it was trying to do, and even some of the stylistic elements, it kind of reminded me of uh, David Byrne's True Stories. Oh yeah, yeah. It kind of had like that feel to it a little bit too. Um, and then obviously there's like a lot of um, there's like a Max Hedrum feel to this as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of like the pirate station and everything, but even just how broad some of the satirical like news like news broadcasts we see and some of the stuff they beam in is too. Like reminded me of Max Hedrum quite a bit. Yeah, it's like, it's like a great cast of wild characters on the plane. Michael J. Pollard and. Al Matthews is great. He's the guy who plays Sergeant Apone in Aliens. And then there's like a guy like there's, there's like a little bit of a pressure to land the plane, you know, because like one of the members in a in a very like almost Rocky Horror-ish way is like in this chair and he needs some kind of medical help. And it just like mm-hmm. it just there's one guy who's like the he's like an actor and he's decided to basically live his life as like Tony Montana. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's, you know, for like 
like whereas like I was saying the the other movies we covered today like hard hard recommends and then some this one is more like the deep cut you know what I mean <laughs> yeah this is like a curiosity that's probably worth yeah. seeing because you know it is like first of all I always find it just a shame when any movie kind of like completely vanishes from like yeah. the ether but but also as we're saying what's interesting about this is how much of it feels very relevant still and that's yeah. that's fairly sad but yeah. before we start recording Goat and I were talking about how. It's funny because this is a movie that's making a big comment on how broken the conservative kind of wing of America is. Yeah. And the character of Westinghouse, uh, there actually is a moment in this where she says that she is going to make America great again. Yeah. And I but, definitely I was like watching and I was like, oh, man. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And how, like, like just how on the nose, you know. Yeah. And, and I mean, it definitely plays up. You know, also introduces, you know, the part of um, kind of like the evangelical movement, how that has infiltrated mm-hmm. politics. So, I mean, I want to say it's a movie that's ahead of its time because it still echoes a lot of stuff that politically happens now. But it's it's really, I guess, technically not ahead of its time because those issues were around back then as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just yeah if anything, it's just more depressing to be yeah. like, oh. It work exactly the same today, right? Yeah, it's just one of those things that kind of proves the point. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I mean, I still got you know the the ending. I can tell we like I still need to see the ending, but you've seen it. Obviously, it, it, I'm assuming it goes in pre- to a pretty madcap, wacky place with the ending. I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because it goes it's it. <laughs> It definitely gives you the kind of wacky ending you would expect, but it also has that feeling of I bet they wish they had more of a budget to do something else here. Right. Um, but it's also funny because I feel like it kind of ends in a way that you almost feel like – I mean if this came out today, you would definitely look at the ending and go, wow, they're trying to set up a franchise. Right. Which I don't know. If, I don't know if that was ever the mentality back then, but it yeah. certainly ends in a way where you're like, hmm, I, could, I, I wonder if they were like, ooh, we could see like more adventures of this wacky crew, you know? Yeah. I don't know, but but also too, ironically enough, Trev, out of these, uh, what are they, five movies here, this was the the one out of all of them that to, to me kind of felt like the most '80s, like just the tone and the kind of like what you got out of movies back then, because there was a lot of kind of like these political commenting, wacky movies back then, you know, that would that was satire politics mm-hmm. in a, in just a madcap way and whatnot. Well, it's funny too because I also think out of all these that. You know, this is maybe not the best movie out of the bunch, but this is maybe the, the Dennis Hopper character that feels the most like actual Dennis Hopper. Right. Yeah. Or at least a Dennis Hopper of a time, because then you, right. what's interesting about Dennis Hopper is, as as many people know, as he got older, he actually did become conservative, which okay. which happens to a lot of these actors. You know, think of James Woods and them. But uh, yeah. But you know, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the their <laughs> earlier days. So. <laughs> yeah, I was shocked when I was glancing at the. Um the Dennis Hopper IMDb that he was in that movie, the American Carol or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause, the, cause, cause it, I mean, pretty much that movie is the complete 180 of this movie. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's I don't know, f- fun little curiosity for something. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Go, yeah. why not? You know? Yeah. I mean, at the very least watch a few minutes of it, you know, just be like, and what's great about like, at least the YouTube version. Cause there's like some, areas it was released as uh the american way some places it was released as riders of the storm at least the riders of the storm laser disc rip you get to see the uh where it tells the guy to change the laser disc <laughs> oh yeah that, dude i want that's the one i watched yeah, and yeah. i i had a laser disc player and 
man, did that bring back some memories. Yeah, I got a Laserdisc player probably like eight or nine years ago. Unfortunately, it's been broken for about the last three or four years, and I just having trouble finding a place that can service it. But um, <laughs> if if you are someone with a working Laserdisc player, uh, you can look this film up. Uh, I think the Riders of the Storm versions on eBay, plenty of copies in the fifteen dollar range. So really, maybe I should get because I'm pretty sure it's it's unplugged and just sitting in my basement. But I'm fairly sure mine still works. Yeah, mine just like after like I didn't have it hooked up for about a year because I moved and I just was lazy with rehooking up to my system and I finally hooked it up again when I watched more Laserdisc and yeah, just that I think it was just that time period of me uh, not using it kind of made a rubber band or something go bad inside there. So mm-hmm. yeah, like I, I've heard with laser. Here's a Laserdisc tip for all you hot Laserdisc fiends out there: try to run your player even if it's only for a few minutes. Try to run it like you know at least once every two or three months. So keep it warm so yeah so that pretty much wraps it up um kind of the assertion here was um this was probably the best year that an actor could have had in history and i pretty much agree the only person that i that i found out trev who was maybe a strong contender and this was just i mean obviously this guy didn't reach the heights that hopper did because hopper got a academy award nomination but as far as just making a career, I think 1983, Tom Cruise. Uh, first, he did The Outsiders. I want to say that that came out in March. Just a small part in you know the ensemble cast. Uh, about a month later, he was he did his first lead in the film Losing It, and then in Risky Business. A couple months after that, um, I want to say that September, he did um, uh, Risky Business was his first lead. That was actually his first hit. And then in November, he did all the right moves, the football drama, which he, again, he was the lead again and showed his more dramatic side. So, I mean, that 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 year definitely made Tom, uh, Tom Cruise's career, but I still think we got to maybe give Hopper the edge here for getting the Academy nomination. And, and I, as hard as it is to launch a career and having the right material for an actor to launch a career into the stratosphere A-list like that, same time, I think maybe it's a little harder for somebody like dennis hopper who had sullied his reputation so much to come back and just mm-hmm. you know within the course of a year put out so many not just you know great movies but i mean you know even outside the movie graveyard edge i feel like pretty much everybody knows you know 30 years later they know blue velvet and hoosiers like even younger people i think would probably be familiar with these films still so yeah I mean, I think there's a certain generation that probably came to Dennis Hopper through Speed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just hope that then they did go back and, and check out some of these older ones as well. And I mean, even like some of the, I mean, obviously go back and check out Easy Rider and stuff too. But, yeah, yeah. But, but man, this was a peak year for him for sure. Well, I, I think I think kind of like this this time period and this relaunch of him in the kind of like late 80s here, I, I think that's kind of what propelled him to the, the the you know, the place where he could start doing movies like Speed, you know, in the early 90s. Yeah. Know? Well, yeah, I mean, after this, like, after this run right here, Hollywood trusted him enough to let, let him direct Colors, like you yeah. said, which was which also, was, I like, a good movie. Um, yeah, it was very yeah. critically acclaimed. It, yeah. It, and it's still very good. Get some early Don Cheadle in that, which I love. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, Dennis Hopper, man, uh, definitely somebody who I think is known as a '60s icon in a lot of ways, but definitely powerful, powerful force in the '80s. So 
Yeah, I think it's just, I think it's safe to say, uh, you don't have to like kind of quantify him with a time period. I just think of Dennis Hopper as an icon, period, oh, yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I do miss him. I think like he's one oh, of those, yeah. it's a presence that, uh, you know, like as, as he got a little later in life, he was definitely appearing in a lot of junk, as often happens with actors. Yeah. It's not necessarily his fault, you know, but, uh, but it was one of those things you were just always happy to see. I mean, it just always I brought agree. like a, gra- a gravitas to everything. So, yeah, the, there was kind of that whole later kind of like I call it like the kind of short haircut Dennis Hopper ears. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where mm-hmm. he kind of just always showed up with his little short haircut, and it was you know I, I think probably the peak of later Dennis Hopper. Where he actually, even though he's barely in it, but he got to actually play something kind of interesting. I'll actually say Land of the Dead. He was pretty interesting. Yeah, no, yeah. I like him a lot in that. Yeah. yeah. Kind of some uh, interesting commentary of politics at that time. But, uh, yeah, this was a great idea. I'm glad you came up with this, Trev. Um, we'll definitely uh, try to do kind of things like this more in the future. And uh, it was good talking to you again, Trev. I don't even think we've done an episode for probably like six months or so. So. Like, yeah, yeah it was a lot of fun, but uh, this this will probably be our last. Um, usually, usually we just we just blow out our our assholes just going on and on about Halloween, and we're really not doing that this year. We're doing the counter programming to the Halloween podcast rush. But uh, either way, this will probably be our last show of October. So uh, I want to at least uh, wish the listeners a happy Halloween. Yeah, of course. I mean, I still, I still love Halloween. I've been watching a lot of horror movies this month. Uh, it was actually, it was kind of nice to talk about something else for once. So, yeah. But, but still, yeah, definitely happy Halloween to everybody. Yeah, I, I, I've kind of, uh, kind of casted a dud for Halloween here. Uh, I think uh, October, the only horror movie I watched was a couple nights ago. I watched Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare. <laughs> hey, I'm a Freddy's I'm a Freddy's Dead defender, so you're not gonna bother me with that. You know, I am too. I've kind of been onto it for a while. I kind of wasn't a fan when it was released, but I, I I'm kind of into it now because, in a weird way, to me, it it's like the film that perfectly perfectly kind of encaps, encapsulates the like early '90s pop filmmaking style, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I just think it's such a it kind of well. It's kind of what I was talking about earlier. It's like when at certain points with a franchise, you have nothing left to do but kind of like make a meta commentary of the franchise itself. Yeah. And I think Freddy's Dead is actually pretty good at that of kind of poking fun at like what Freddy had become by that point, right. which is fine by me. When you're at the when you're at that point, why not? You know, you can't. It's that it's that same thing of what Hooper was thinking with Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two is you can't make that first movie again. Right. You know, you're never going to be able to that scary again. And but Freddy, especially at that point, was just a comedic figure so why not lean all the way into it and just go completely goofy and uh I, and i think rachel Talley get, did a really good job with it i also like tank girl come on rachel Talley, so let's give her more credit i was huge in the tanker i guess this was like pre-internet days i like you have no idea how much i was in the tanker when it came out and it wasn't until like years later that like i discovered that it's considered like a terrible movie no it's a fun movie yeah i thought it was great so anyway, guys, happy Halloween. Uh, we'll sign off here. We'll get you out of here a little under two hours. <laughs> but it was great catching up with Trev. It was great catching up with some uh, Dennis Hopper nostalgia here. And uh, if you don't have anything else to say, Trev, uh, I think we'll just sign off, say thank you, and we'll catch yep. you next time. Thank in you. The, in the movie graveyard. You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows, visit electronicmediacollective.com.